my name is Paul Burrows. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You only get into, out the game where you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you yeah. regret that at oh, all? Yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm Paul Burrows. Um, I'm what my 45 now. Live uh, live in Peterborough, but obviously grew up uh, in the northwest on the Wirral. So uh, yeah, I've got wife and two kids down here, and uh, yeah, I've you know had a few challenges in my life, which I'm, I'm sure we'll we'll talk about. Just out of curiosity, Paul, and only because I'm being nosy, what was it that took you down to to Peterborough? It was work. So uh, went to university in in Chester, and then. First, I guess, career job opportunity took me down to Kettering first and then to Peterborough. So, you know, two two glamorous places that you always, you know, aspire, aspire to, <laughs> to, to live in growing up in the northwest. But um, yeah, and then life takes over, doesn't it? And you put down roots and been here 20 plus years since. Yeah, I guess it's probably it was probably on, always on the road map, wasn't it? You know, Kettering and then Peterborough, like like Kylian Mbappe wanting to go to Real Madrid. It's like you know, you've got to have your career path, haven't you? Well, it's, it's the A14 of dreams, you know. <laughs> or, you know, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously on 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 this podcast, Paul, we 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 talk about men and masculinity and and mental health and and all those things that kind of relate to those sorts of topics. And as a, a young man, when you were growing up in the in the eighties and the nineties, do you remember the words mental health being used much, if ever, in your kind of social circles? Absolutely not. We used the word mental enough, but never <laughs> mental health. I just don't think it was a certainly wasn't a concept that I was conscious of growing up. Um, you know, through school, you know, in anything socially, really. And I think. You know, for me, it's I was sort of reflecting back, you know, it's probably only been the last sort of 10, 12, 15 years that it's, you know, it's come into consciousness. And obviously it's, you know, it's a much more natural part of everyday conversation these days, which is, which is great. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, really, because when, when we, when we do these, these interviews, and they're often with people who are a little bit older than us, and that's the, the a similar sort of theme that comes up around it not being something that the that the people were aware of in sort of seventies, eighties, nineties. And even even myself, I mean, I was born in ninety two. And thinking back to being in school, I certainly don't ever remember there being a conversation that was explicit about mental health in school, either between people in my year, friend groups, teachers. It just wasn't a thing that was that was talked about openly at all, was it? No, no, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's, it's great now that, you know, I've got two daughters, 12 and 14, and actually, you know, they're learning about this stuff, uh, you know, talking about it, uh, understanding difference, uh, which, which is just great, didn't have that growing up. So, you know, but every generation kind of, you know, moves and needs to sort of aspire to improve on the previous one, doesn't it? So, uh, yeah, no, absolutely great. Uh, but still, still a downside of uh, hard work to do, isn't there? To to get it, you know, re- you know, really bust the taboo. Yeah, no, I think so. I think it, in a way, it's it, I've almost come round to the idea that, and I'm par- partially kind of accelerated by the pandemic. I think people are sort of well on the way to 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 being in the right frame of mind to understand the severity of of what sort of mental health implications can have. But it's now getting a better sort of understanding of the nuance to it and then that will obviously develop the conversation further um before we started recording paul we were, we were talking a little bit about about tranmere and our sort of disappointing start of the season you're obviously like myself and ryan and Ant, we're all tranmere fans when did you first start watching football and and why tranmere well i was yeah from a tranmere perspective i'm a bit of a glory hunter my my first <laughs> game was the aston villa league cup semi-final home leg 
Um, my mate's dad couldn't go, so I used his ticket. Um, before that, I'd, you know, you're either a red or a blue, weren't you? My my cousins were all blue, so I I supported Liverpool. Went went a few times, but but not a great deal. And then, uh, really, Tranmere started for me when I went to university. So I went to university in Chester, in Chester. So not not a million miles away, but I, I moved away from home. Uh, and then I think. Tramir just became the focal point for me and my dad to catch up every weekend. So, um, you know, either on the train or take me washing back to my mum and all that type of stuff. So it, it came, Tramir has been my connection with the, with the Wirral, with home ever since I moved away. That's, um, that's I've not, I've not heard somebody put it that way. I think that's a really nice way of thinking about it, isn't it? That the football gives you that, that, that connection to, to where you're from and, and you know what you kind of identify with i suppose isn't it yeah and you know i'm now in a sort of group of exiles down in east anglia and i think you know that kind of unites you yeah i think i think there's something about that that sort of concentration that you get when you're further away from it so you can you know you can't go to every game you can't just you know go for a drive past the club because you're feeling a bit nostalgic or all those type of things you know it, it you, you you go up there you know what 10 15 times a year uh, and yeah so so I, it, it just changes your relationship with the club I think it, you know it's, it's, it's no better or worse than being a sort of local fan but it, it's just different uh, but it does it does strengthen my connection with the Wirral I think and it just gives me that connection back to my roots uh, and I think you know throughout the stuff that we're going to talk about no doubt on, on on the podcast that's that's been really important for me that that sort of central bind I think back to where I'm from. And that you, you you referenced there, Paul, and you you mentioned at the, the, the very start about some of the things that you, you've you've been through in your life, and so, and you know I, I think you've 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 probably lived about four or five people's lives all in one go. To be honest with you, from from reading over the very helpful information that you sent over to us about the kind of major incidents in your life, the first one on the list that you sent us was was all the way back in in two thousand and one when you were were diagnosed with with Crohn's disease, age 26, and you had your first major bowel surgery. First of all, for anyone who doesn't know, but what, what is Crohn's disease? Yeah, okay, so Crohn's disease, and I had no clue about this before before I was diagnosed, uh, is a inflammatory bowel disease, so very, very different to um, uh, IBS, which, which most people will have come across. So it's a bowel disease, um, and the way I describe it, and, you know, you probably Google it and this will, you know, it'll sell you something completely different, but effectively uh, your, your body thinks, or your, so it can, it can happen anywhere from your sort of, your guts down right to the other end of your digestive system. And um, effectively your body thinks it's under attack and therefore it's trying to fight a, an infection that doesn't exist, which in itself then create, creates inflammation in your bowel, uh, which causes you issues. So uh, effectively it's your body trying to attack itself uh, and there's no, there's no clear understanding of what caused it or what causes it, uh, and there's no cure for it. So it's all about a management approach, uh, which primarily is about managing, you know, what's in your bowel and or suppressing your immune system so that it doesn't fight itself. It's quite quite a quite an intriguing disease, but one that, you know, has the symptoms. Are very different in 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 everyone's sort of individual individual circumstances as well. So it's not always easy to diagnose. It's um it's interesting that you mentioned IBS, Paul, because I think that was when you when when you say Crohn's, that's where my mind sort of immediately goes. Um, and and I think I think that's interesting. You were saying it about it, the the kind of the symptoms and the severity and stuff is is different for different people. You obviously ended up having numerous bowel surgeries the first one of which was when you were 26 how did you end up getting to that point so yeah and i often reflect back on this so i after university when i moved down down here looking back at old pictures i could see i was declining you know i look back at pictures and i could see i was a bit thin my you know i didn't have much color in my face and stuff like this so something obviously happened sort of after university that was sort of leading me on a downward path but I didn't notice anything uh, and stuff like that and I, I eventually just lost loads and loads of weight 
eight. Uh, and uh, and something was wrong, basically. So I ended up in going into to hospital and then I was in and out of hospital. I suffered from this not having classic symptoms, which is blood in your stool. Uh, so I got misdiagnosed and, you know, had some probably procedures to investigate what they thought was the issue that probably exacerbated the issue. So I, I was, yeah, I was, I was sort of in and out of hospital in, in 2001, dec- you know, slowly declining. Uh, at that time, you know, there wasn't much on the internet um, and everything you read about Crohn's disease was sort of written from a, you know, 70 year old man or woman's perspective. So it, I didn't feel like it, it just felt so alien and um you know my first major hospital experience my family we'd never been through that type of thing as well so it was a long old journey and because i think i must have been on a slow decline for a number of years my body in terms of its nutrient levels uh, and my blood you know quality of my bloods was was way off uh, so spent a lot of time trying to get me um, fit enough, if, if you like, for, for surgery, but it never quite worked. So I ended up having surgery um, when I was wasn't nutrient sort of well able. So it it made healing post surgery quite difficult. And, and I presume, I mean, hearing you talk about it, Paul, and sort of thinking about it from, you know, trying to put myself in in, in your shoes. How did you kind of feel about? having such a serious procedure at, uh, you know, what is a relatively very young age? Well, it was, yeah, I mean, that, that, that first sort of six months hospital experience, I mean, I, I just wanted to be better, basically. So I don't, I wasn't particularly daunted by the surgery, but I had, I kind of had in my mind that, you know, surgery would solve it and all of that type of stuff where, uh, where it didn't, it didn't really. But, you know, at the end of the day, my first surgery, was basically three foot of bowel taken out and then stitched back together and stitched up. So, you know, I ended up out of that with a, you know, massive scar down my, you know, from a sort of belly button down to my top of my groin, a uh, bit of a war wound uh, and and then kind of crossing my fingers that I could live life again. But little little did, did I know, you know, that probably would change my life forever, actually, that, that, that first experience. Um, but again, you know, I think this could be the subject of a whole different podcast. I think that whole first hospital experience, you know, I didn't handle particularly well. Sort of reflected with my mum a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you know, we we were a bit passive in in hospital. You know, we, it's it, it's a sad state of affairs. But actually, through hospital, you need to be a sort of active, intelligent patient pushing yourself along. Whereas I think we just kind of assumed that the NHS would all, you know, everything will click into place and you didn't have to lobby for your own needs and all of this type of stuff. And actually looking back, I think we'd have taken control over it a little bit more and might have got a slightly different outcome. But uh, anyway, that, you know, that's, that's learning. But um, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was tough then because came out of hospital and then you're on medication for life, uh, trying to, trying to understand what this, this disease is that you've just, you've got, uh, trying to find young people who've got it so that you've got some sort of you know role models who you know and stuff like that and and actually that that took about 10 years before actually Crohn's disease became a little bit more prominent obviously with social media now it's a lot easier to, to sort of make connections and get information and have support groups uh wasn't quite like that back in 2001. And I would presume I mean the thing that came to my mind first of all Paul was thinking about again thinking about being in in your shoes would be did it did it kind of change you as a person from maybe from like a confidence perspective that you were now sort of living a sort of slightly or you know very different life than what you were living beforehand yeah i mean yeah because it's it's suddenly suddenly had a you know like i said beforehand i was obviously degrading and didn't really know it so you didn't let it sort of hold you back so to speak but after that then when you you know you're managing a bowel condition you 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 know you need to know where the loo is all the time uh you're conscious about you know what's going on down there smells all of that type of stuff and it does change how you live your life you know i missed out on mates weddings and stag do's and those type of things you know you have to cancel going to concerts last minute um and so it does sort of change who you are the nature of your relationships with people uh so yeah in, in it you know at that point i hadn't really equated it to uh you know that sort of lack of self-confidence but um you know i think i think i did have 
a bit of a sort of light bulb moment in 2012, which we'll probably talk about a bit later, where, where I'll sort of yeah reflect on that. But uh, yeah, no, it, ch- it changed changed a lot actually. Uh, uh, yeah, relatively young before you'd started a family and stuff like that. Did you? Um, I mean, we we spoke in the, at the very top of the at the interview, Paul, about the sort of concept of mental health maybe not being something that you were aware of when you were very young. Did was that the type of thing you were able to verbalize to people, or was it something you hadn't really quite sort of understood about yourself? Yeah, no, not at all. You know, all of this is with hindsight and looking back. You know, significantly more mature, more mature now and wise. And you know, I've, I think I've, I've been quite lucky actually through my career and job because I've got a leadership role in an organisation. So you know, I've been on lots of that sort of leadership training and and you know and all that type of stuff so it's helped me gain significantly more self-awareness than I certainly had back when I was back when I was 26 so a lot of this you know it's all about you know it's easy to look back and self-critique isn't it and I'm good at that Uh, but in in the moment no a lot of it passed me by didn't have the right probably networks to have proper conversations about it wasn't didn't really understand what was going on in my head at all as well um yeah so uh yeah I mean it's easy looking back isn't it yeah no absolutely it's it's an interesting thing really because I I mean in in a slightly different way I I kind of reflect a lot on sort of experiences that I had as a teenager and and, and thoughts and feelings that I had then that you wish that you could go back and, and, and tell younger you, don't worry, it, it, it's this, or don't worry about that, or you don't need to be so concerned about those things, or, you know, all those sort of type of things, as you say, that are so much easier in, in retrospect, aren't they? And, um, and, then, and then four years after the original surgery, you have a second bowel surgery. Could you just talk us through how you came to have a second procedure? So, uh, yeah, so... Uh... Like I said, I was I was on um, on drugs after my first surgery to suppress my immune system, and you know it, I was having sort of mini relapses, so to speak. You know, feeling a bit rubbishy and, and stuff like that. And I, I remember actually it was New Year's Day. Me and me and Lynn, my wife, were went to went to watch Tramway play at Oldham, uh, freezing cold as it always is in Oldham, walking down the hill there, and I felt a little twinge in my leg. I thought, oh, I've pulled a hamstring or something here. Uh, but then over the course of the next few months, that got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And it ended up that I could hardly walk on it. Uh, and eventually, again, once I'd navigated the, um, the, the the sort of NHS system to get back to see my gastroenterologist, because, you know, nothing was going on suspiciously, if you like, with my blood, with my bloods. But actually, it ended up that I had a had an abscess the size of a tennis ball uh, uh so my bowel had perforated and effectively was wedded to my pelvis, which which was pretty significant. So, uh, and at this point, Lynn was um, fairly heavily pregnant with with our first. So, uh, you know, I, I I knew that we had a deadline of new baby due in sort of uh, April May time. I think it was when that when it when the due date was, uh, and about March time, I was like. I've got a tennis ball size <laughs> abscess on my pelvis. That yeah, it's not a, it's it's not ideal, is it? <laughs> no, uh, that needs some intervention. But it but actually, what 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 it gave me was that sort of clarity of what I needed and what was important. So really usefully that. So when I went into hospital this time, I uh, I was much more educated, if you like, about Crohn's disease and what my choices might be uh, it was the same surgeon as I had uh, for the first surgery and I did t- decided to completely approach it differently you know I didn't quite get on with my surgeon first time because I was you know poor patient didn't know what was going on whereas this time I, you know I made I tried to build a relationship with him one on one rather than surgeons who can come across as these sort of superior ag- arrogant people I was like no I'm going to deal with him eye to eye uh, and we went into his office and we talked through the pros and cons of probably the four or five options that were open to me uh, and I went I'll have the most extreme because I know it will give me the best chance of long-term security of being a father and stuff like that even if the the short-term surgery involved in it was uh, was going to was going to really test my body and my mental health one one question I was I was wondering Paul was and I guess it goes back to the 
original conversation we were having before about Crohn's disease. What is the sort of severity of, of the condition? Is it is it potentially life-threatening, I presume? Uh, it, it's it's life-altering. I mean, I think about, you know, again, I think it's about one in 1,500 people have it, you know, and increasingly younger men and women have it. So, you know, it's quite widespread, and most people know, will know someone who has who's got it or or uh, ulcerative colitis, which is the sort of sister disease. Um, so so it's, it's out there, but most people have it in a, in a way that can be managed basically through uh, low level medication uh, and stuff like that. And, uh, but in my case, I'd kind of probably gone beyond that before we knew what it was. So I was always on a pathway towards surgery. So you're always just trying to manage yourself in, in remission, um, hopefully with medication and surgeries kind of of your last resort but uh, unfortunately for me uh, <laughs> I've had three of them uh, but uh, yeah it, it, so it is different for different people. And the, 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 that particular surgery resulted in you requiring a colostomy bag and, and, and in the notes that you, did, did you sent over for us you said that you became disabled at that point you're obviously just sort of 29, 30 and it's about the same sort of age as I am now did that experience feel sort of emasculating in any way or did people treat you differently uh, it, it was it was massive for me that because you know so it's permanent colostomy bag so basically of having pretty much all my large bowel taken out my uh rectum and anus removed you know for, for being brutally blunt about it and my backside sewn up so you know major nine hour surgery big deal uh, and because you haven't got control of your bowels effectively, and it, it, that's why you're sort of you're classed as, as disabled. But the, the irony being in it all that actually it saved my life. So I, I always describe having that surgery as enabling me rather than disabling me. But but actually, you know, I do tick that sort of disabled box, which I which I have struggled with in the past. You know, just to come into terms with big, feeling like I'm labeling labeled, even if I'm, you know, it's just in my head more than anything else. But but. It was, it was really tough, actually, because um, a month after I'd had the surgery, uh, we had our first daughter, Eve. So I became a dad whilst also trying to recover and have this all go on. And I, I felt massively different. You know, I, I think, again, you know, the, the beauty of hindsight, I don't think I was the most self-confident kid growing up. You know, I went through puberty probably later than most. So I was always the short arse at school up until you know, probably A-levels really. So I didn't, you know, I didn't mature particularly uh, early. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you probably know what that's like going through school. Um, so I think I probably always had some under, underneath sort of insecurities about my body image. Uh, and then, you you know, you come out and you've suddenly got a colostomy bag sat on your, sat on your stomach uh, and all of that type of stuff. It, it did sense, it, you know, it, it sent me into a, a weird place. You know, I felt like damaged goods. Uh, I struggled for years, actually, in terms of, you know, taking my top off either to go swimming or when we're on holiday or all that type of thing. So uh, for a long time, it really held me back, really held me back. And I struggled with it because I didn't feel like, you know, uh, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't feel like an, a, you know, an attractive bloke. You know, how could my wife love someone with this on? You know, all of those type of things went through my head at the same time as and I'm now a dad. <laughs> So yeah, yeah big, big changes around 2005, and yeah. I presume as well. I, I mean, we we we've spoken, haven't we, about the sort of different kind of landscape that, that that was around at the time in terms of the way that people interacted with one another. And I think there's been, you know, I certainly feel like now we're in a much more a much better position, particularly as blokes. I mean, I, I don't know about you, Paul, but my friends and I are kind of go to is to rip the piss out of each other basically constantly. Um, but I do feel as though it's we're now in a position where if it was something serious or something that you tell people is off limits, then it, 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 people are much more receptive to that. But I guess sort of going 15, 16 years back, it was probably it, people maybe not think about it as being such a, a different kind of environment. Did that kind of almost difficulty that you know in terms of how you felt about yourself was that something you found difficult to translate to other people as well yeah because I, I to be honest I didn't really appreciate it until about 2011-12 when I started to to join the dots on some of 
you know, some of what I was feeling and experiencing. So, um, yeah, there's probably six years in there where I, yeah, I, I didn't really know what was going on. I, I didn't either have the self-awareness or the networks or whatever it was to, to talk about that with anyone, really. You know, I did see a counsellor in and around that time, but I was, yeah, it was, it was the wrong person and we didn't, you know, it, it wasn't a particularly helpful, helpful experience. Um, uh, and it, yeah, so, it, you know, it took a long time to start to, you know, join the dots on, you know, how, how, how this particular event and, and the one we'll talk about in a bit sort of impacted me. Uh, and, you know, more recently, though, you know, and, I, and I, so it's really only actually relatively recently that I've started to think, oh, bugger it in terms of, you know, being out and about with my top off, you know, on the beach or going swimming, you know, more confidently. And, and a lot of that comes from actually having seen, you know, uh, um, young women, you know, be out and about and, you know, do holiday shots in their closet. I'm thinking, well, actually, if if, if girls in their 20s could, can be body confident, then an old fellow in his 40s can, you know. So uh, actually, you know, through, through that sort of role modelling that that, uh, that I've seen um, young women do on social media, it's like, you know what, yeah, it, it doesn't really matter, does it? Everyone's body's different, you know, whether you got, you know, fat tummy, colostomy bag, dodgy tattoos, you know, it doesn't really matter. And if someone wants to stare, well, you know, or, you know, so be it. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Well, you know, that's that's on them, that's not on me, doesn't you know what I mean? And I think that's that's a really healthy way to look at it, almost, isn't it? Um, and then and then a, a, a fourteen months later, in in two thousand and six, your your daughter died from meningitis. Would you be able to talk us through your your memories at that time, Paul? Yeah, uh, yeah, and it's uh, you know, obviously it's. It stirs the emotions, and it's it, it, it's it, it, it you know it it was a really really tough period. So you know we had we had Eve, um, and um, you know like I said, I was I was coming to terms with being a dad whilst all this was going on, and then uh, in um, in two thousand and six, she was coming off the back of about a chickenpox, uh, and we we're actually up on the Wirral. Up at my mum and dad's, uh, and she was, um, yeah, she we we heard sort of crying when uh, when she woke up, and it was different crying. It was different crying, so you knew something was up, uh, and it was like right straight to Arrow Park. Um, from Arrow Park, then she, she sort of went went all lucid and um, uh, and sort of vacant and rushed to uh, Alder Hay, uh, straight in, straight into Alder Hay. We follow across, across, you know, through the tunnel, get there and, you know, effectively told that she's uh, contracted streptococcal meningitis uh, and uh, the best case scenario is um, she'd be severely brain damaged. And that's the best case scenario. And, and this was, you know, this was, you know, this was all over the weekend, basically, and and uh, you know my time my time stamp on this sort of goes because I can't remember too much about it. But we were, uh, yeah, effect effectively, and for the next sort of 12, 36 hours, she was she got more and more um, sort of well, it became more and more clear that there was no way she was coming out of this, uh, and we eventually got pulled into the room and were heavily advised that we should turn off her life support system uh, and would we consider organ donation uh, uh you know so yeah and and we were we were in a place where actually we we got all the family up so everyone sort of went in and said their said their goodbyes and then lynn and i held her body as they turned off the um off the life support uh and that was the end of of eve 14 months pretty much went from happy girl to tragically dead within 40 hours maybe but you know and all of a sudden your you know your world has ended isn't it you know all i wanted to, was to be a dad a good dad 
Uh, and yeah, it's taken away. And obviously, hearing in your voice, Paul, that, 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 that you know, it, it would you sort of 15 years on, and that those emotions obviously are still incredibly raw. And you know, when you when you had spoken to us about coming on the podcast, and, and you know, we do we we exchanged emails and had a read about what happened with you with your daughter and you know I, I always think with with when I hear about um stories like yours that, that I, I find it really hard to almost comprehend how you would even go about going through that scenario if you see what I mean how how, how do you you know in those first few hours those first few days how do you even begin to process that both both for you and also for your partner and for your family and for for everything else that's going on well, you, you you can't really because you, you you're in such a, you're in such a bubble, you know. It's 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 this, this bubble of 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 just well, it's it's kind of like such stark reality, but 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 abnormality at the same time. It's like we, we aren't designed to outlive our kids, you know, and 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 you know the 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 speed of it, all of that. Yeah, and I just felt empty, you know, just completely, completely empty. Um, you know, just, just, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was like we were watching someone else. You know, uh, it, it was just horrendous. Uh, and then, you know, and I can't, I can't really remember the, the days and weeks after that. I, I can remember certain, you know, certain experiences. So we like I said, we were up on the Wirral. So my dad drove us back to our house to pick up a few bits in preparation for the funeral, which we held up up at Landerkin. Uh and and you know, so I can remember coming back into the house and the smells of on her clothes and all of that type of stuff. And uh, I can remember that. I can remember the very, very strange and surreal conversation with the funeral director, uh, you know, West Kirby funeral director who were obviously you know used to dealing with you know funerals for for you know people <laughs> significantly older completely it felt inexperienced in dealing with you know child loss uh and then the funeral you know strong memories of that but it all sort of concertinas and, and stuff and it's how you move on well you literally just take a day day at a time but i think you know we I think the, the important, you know, the, the the thing I was lucky with, the lucky, I don't know if it's luck, but, you know, it brought Lynn and I closer together. I, I guess you either go one of two ways after that type mm. of thing. And, and thankfully for us, it, it brought us closer together, even though our grief, whilst obviously we shared the grief, our, our um, sort of up and down roller coaster of emotions was different. So working that out was different, you know, and I... I went back to work too soon uh, because I kind of thought it was the right thing to do. That didn't work for me uh, uh, and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was, I mean, there's, you know, there, there is no rule book, is there? You know, you, you don't, you shouldn't have to face that type of thing, but you do. Uh, and, and yeah, it's, yeah, I just, I just feel for anyone who's, you know, who's, who's gone through similar or, or, you know, had to deal with, you know, that type of thing. And I suppose, you know, you, you've spoken a couple of times, Paul, mentioning things in retrospect that you've maybe been able to unravel a little bit with the, um, you know, with the passing of time and stuff with regards to a variety of things that have happened in your life. In terms of what happened with, with even in terms of, of, of that whole time period, do you have a better understanding now of how you managed to, to get through it? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I... Um... I'd love to know what the key ingredients are, really, because, you know, I, I remember it, Eve died about the same time or a similar time to when, do you remember the German goalkeeper, Robert Enke? He, yeah. He committed suicide after his son tragically died. And it was about the same time. I, remember, I was sort of thinking, well, okay, why, you know, why has he chosen that path and I've chosen this path? And what, you know, what what's the ingredient and how can we bottle that? And, you know, so that people don't feel that they've got nowhere to go other than, you know, doing, you know, going that, you know, that route. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think I, um, I certainly, you know, well, I think we, we, uh, we, 
we well Lynn became pregnant again not too long after like I said it brought us closer together um uh, so you know that then provided a sort of you know I, I guess a, a focal point but I put too much energy once I'd got back to work in my own time you know we took a bit of extended time off and stuff like that but once I got back to work my focus was on you know basically providing for for, for our family and, and stuff like that that's where my energy was it was misplaced energy again you know looking back um but I yeah I, I focused on on that work stuff and, and a lot of this was still bouncing off the back of my last surgery, the colostomy bag and all of this, you know, I, I, I didn't want to leave Lynn in the lurch should I, you know, not be able to be the breadwinner and all that type of stuff. Did you almost feel that sort of responsibility, you know, like as a man and a, and, and, and a dad to be strong and stoic and, and be there in that kind of role? I've always felt that, you know, I've, I've always felt that in, inherent responsibility, uh, you know, and I think some of that comes from my dad and, you know, he was great in terms of providing for us, so, you know, uh, all that type of stuff. So I think I, I, I measure, I measure myself up to him and, you know, when I, you know, when I, you know, I feel, you know, I felt a failure as a father because we'd lost Eve and damaged goods because, you know, here I am been through surgeries, got a colostomy bag. So I, I felt I wasn't, you know, where I needed, where I wanted to be or where I should have been. And I was probably put, <laughs> overly self-critical uh in that regard so yeah i was putting all the energy into um into work really to try and like say get that that sort of security should we you know should something happen to me and all of that type of stuff that i just sort of felt that was my that was my role and and yeah we had we you know we had amy in 2007 and then molly in in, in 2009 and um you know you, you you know that that takes on sort of and, and a new um uh, yeah a new importance when you've then got you know effectively four four mouths that you're the primary provider for did um did having your your two daughters you know molly and amy that you just mentioned there but did that having them around and having them in your life did that make dealing with the grief of, of losing eve easier or harder or was what was the kind of dynamic with in that sense yeah uh, it was, um, we were we were incredibly nervous, obviously, with Amy's birth and everything leading up to that. So, and thankfully, the NHS were very, very supportive. So, you know, we had every every test and extra scans and all that type of stuff. But you know, the before Amy was born, and uh, and you know, she, she, that 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 was that was fine. And then you know, Molly's birth was, you know, that that was that was all good. And I think. But the challenge for me, and and so I might as well, you know. So when I when I talked about this sort of light bulb moment that I had in about uh, 2011, 12, what what that was then sort of really helped me realise that there was stuff that I was doing that was not over, that was quite damaging actually. And uh, so it's this sort of misplaced energy, you know. I threw myself into work, uh, probably at the expense of my own health. Uh, uh, so I was, you know, high energy at work, trying to do a good job, move my career forward, all that type of stuff. And, you know, it was working, you know, uh, but actually I was knackered. At the end of the day, I would crash. The weekends were a write off. So I wasn't really being a great, <laughs> a great parent or, or husband or, or anything like that, because I was just, you know, knackered uh, beyond work. Uh, and it was really only in 2011-12, uh, somewhere around then when I, I went on some emotional intelligence training with work. Uh, and actually real life bulb, light bulb moment there. And I'll describe the, the thing that was a, quite an epiphany for me. The, the psychologist who was doing the training basically asked you know, a group of people to basically draw out their life in a sort of, in peaks and troughs. You know, so do the peaks and troughs of your life, the high points, the low points, and chart that, and then just see what see what comes out and then obviously discuss it as a group and all of that. So I was obviously drawing, you know, the high points of our time with Eve and all of this type of stuff. And, and actually I realized what I'd been doing over that sort of few early years of, of Amy and Molly was I've been, I've been kind of capping the happiness that we were having as a new family, because I didn't want to 
reduce the happiness I felt within that year that we had Eve. Uh, and I realized how damaging that was. I was kind of putting that time on a pedestal thinking I can't be happier than the happiest time I had with Eve. Uh, and what that was then doing was meaning I wouldn't actually, I was kind of capping where we'd go as a, as a family. And I realized that wasn't fair on the girls. It wasn't fair on Lynn. It wasn't fair on the four of us. So it was a little bit of a light bulb moment to me of hold on a minute. I need to find a way to, to, to manage my memories uh, and experiences with Eve, not in a way that dilutes them or degrades it, but not let that hinder how I build relationships and experiences with the girls. Uh, and, I, and it helped me all realise where my energies have been misplaced. So out of that, it was then a case of how do I rebuild uh, some of this stuff? Because I'd recognised that actually the losing Eve and the, the colostomy bag and all of the, you know, the body confidence stuff, it wasn't a confidence thing. I'd had a slow erosion of self-worth over a number of years. And self-worth is the absolute foundation to emotional intelligence. And I needed to get that in play. Uh, so actually from then I started to manage my work life a, a damn sight better and get those foundations in place to help me then what I would say start to you know build back and, and, and eventually sort of thrive through challenges I've had since since sort of 2011 2012. I think that's um that's that's it's it's interesting Paul that you've you've almost you know as you say that you've had that that that, that almost that, that 10 years from when you first had your your, your original bowel surgery up until that emotional intelligence training that you were talking about in terms of where that it all kind of clicked into place for you that you've kind of worked out and self-reflected on yourself and then been able to sort of build and then kind of change your behavior and, and I, I i suppose what it, it was all it'd be like um like a cbt process almost to to a degree um but ha, do you have do you feel as though had you not had that light bulb moment your life may have gone in a different direction yeah yeah definitely I, I would have I would have I would have um I would have overheated shall we say at some point I'm, I'm pretty sure because it, it was quite damaging but yeah but I yeah uh so I I definitely think that would have would have been the case uh absolutely so it, it, it was really you know it was I was really fortunate, you know, work at, you know, in a good company that provides that type of training, you know, you don't, well, you can access this type of stuff some, to some degree, can't you, through, through the NHS in terms of CBT and all of that, but actually not to the, the depth and quality that, that I was fortunate to get through work, uh, and certainly not, you know, sort of 10 years ago or whenever it was, Um so yeah, I, I you know, it's, which is you know kind of why I like doing this type of thing to share my experiences in the hope that, you know, some others who might not been as fortunate as as I to get that type of uh, training might you know join a few dots for themselves and uh, yeah help, help you know get their own light bulb moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, what you said about self worth and self esteem, and I, I think that's 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 crucial Paul and that's that's something that I've been certainly learning about quite a lot but since start particularly since starting doing this podcast that it's so many of the things that that, that that's kind of shape who we are and how we behave all come down to our um self-esteem and self-worth for better or for worse isn't it and I think there's there's probably a lot of work that that, that we can do generally as a as a as a society so to speak to to improve people's knowledge of that I guess yeah no absolutely absolutely it's um yeah, no, it's, it, I mean, it's, it, it's really important, you know, it, it, we were talking about it earlier about what, what you did or didn't learn at school and, you know, you focus your school, you, you focus your school life is to grow your IQ, isn't it? And your mm -hmm. knowledge and your intelligence and all of this. Why isn't there equal weight on, on growing your emotional <laughs> intelligence as part of the curriculum? I, you know, I don't know. I think we'd have been a damn sight better place as a country if we'd had that dual focus. Uh, but there you go. That's a soapbox for you. <laughs> hey, Paul, I'll happily let you get up there, mate. I'll, you know, I'll be standing there behind you waiting for my go. Um, and then a few years after that, in, in 2016, you 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 have your third major bowel surgery. What was the circumstances behind that procedure? Yeah, so this this was, in one way, this was the most challenging, but equally the, um, the I don't know, I, I, I think I handled this one the best, shall we say, because of those previous experiences. So this was the first surgery when 
we had kids, so it was a very different experience as a family. But effectively, what happened there was uh, I was just I just lost a lot of weight really, really quickly. I couldn't keep food down. I was being sick and all this type of stuff. Uh, and effectively, what it was, what it ended up being was the I think the the area where I'd had that very first surgery in 2001 to join that bit of bowel together that was taken out when I had that surgery, when I was malnourished, basically, uh, that area had sort of gone all deformed. So I couldn't, I couldn't basically absorb any food. So I was effectively went down to just below eight stone for, for, and for a fellow who's six foot one, that's pretty, uh, pretty extreme. I was med medically malnourished. I just couldn't keep food down basically. So, uh, eventually, again, I think I was in and out of hospital probably three times in 2016, a total of 55-ish days in hospital in, a, in, in sort of three periods, uh, trying to battle between uh, the medics, because I knew this was heading for surgery from minute one, and I was frustrated in that, you know, you have to go through the motions of trying to get medically stable through medication and stuff like that bef uh, before the surgeon will even, you know, see you when it's like, I know which way this is headed i've had two experiences obviously i was getting very very stressed with trying to get through the system because my uh, my gastroenterologist wasn't the chap who i was under when i was in hospital so it was a different chap who didn't quite connect with and all of this type of stuff but uh, yeah no it was a really challenging time went down to eight eight stone i developed a deep vein thrombosis whilst i was trying to get ready to be to, to have surgery again could never get my weight into an ideal place for surgery. So I ended up having surgery again in a sort of malnourished position, which is not, not a strong position to have surgery. But I think, like I said, it was a very different experience because the girls were, this is the girl, first time the girls had seen me sick and ill. And you're in that sort of dilemma of how much do I expose them to this? Uh, how much do I protect them from it? How much do I put on a brave face? Uh, and I sort of managed the sort of hybrid of all of that. You know, I'd... Yeah, I, I I wanted to I wanted them to see me vulnerable, but not at my lowest. Uh, I wanted them to understand that hospitals were places for good as well as, you know, challenge. Um, uh, uh, but actually, you know, we managed the visiting so that they saw the best of me rather than the worst of me. If you see what I mean, so you know, I think we sort of think between Lynn and I, we managed that pretty well. And obviously, I knew where I was heading and all of that type of stuff. And uh, yeah, just a another surgery to I can't remember how much more bowel they removed I think it's pretty much all my large bowels gone now um and stuff like that but uh, that was yeah that was really challenging just looking in a mirror seeing yourself below eight stone when you when you're six foot one I remember there was one night where they were trying to feed me these drinks which give you all the nutrients you need but without turning it into poo basically so you're absorbing everything um but I just couldn't drink enough of them uh, and I was, I remember one night I was just sat, looked in a mirror and, and, uh, and at this point they'd given me a hospital appointment that was sort of in two months time. And I looked at Lynn and said, at this rate, I'm not going to make it till uh, past the weekend. I, I was malnourished. So I just forced myself into hospital, forced myself into hospital, forced the agenda myself. So I really took control of that knowing, uh, actually I, I, I was the one who knew how bleak my situation was. And I just had to convince the medics and the surgeons of that. Did you ever at any point, Paul, because, and this is the thing that, I, that kind of, that I always think about when, when, when people are in extreme situations with their health and, 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 and when there's sort of repeated um, sort of things that kind of, that you have to deal with as you have. Did you ever go through that feeling of being like, why, why do I keep having to go through this? Why does it keep happening to me? Like, why can't I just be left alone with it almost? Um, I did early on. So in, in the early diagnosis, I had a lot of whimy moments. And obviously when we lost Eve, there's, there's an awful lot of that. But whenever I've looked, that's always dragged me down into negative places. So I, 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 I try, I certainly through, through that bowel surgery, I was like, no, look, I, I, we've got a great family here. It, it, this is what I'm living with. I know I'm going to end up with surgery. I know I can actually thrive post-surgery. So let's just get to the surgery and then, then I can build a plan and I know where I stand. So much less of the why me because uh, it's too easy to drag yourself down into really horrible places, especially when you're in and out of hospital and all that type of stuff. So 
I, I try to avoid that these days as, as best I can. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose it's about being kind of, we talked about it before on the podcast, about being active, being actively particip- participating in that sort of process in your mind rather than being passive and letting yeah. it happen to you, I suppose. Um, I was kind of asking it mainly because, obviously, I'm going to move us on to, to, to 2019. Um, and as I said at the start, Paul, you've almost, you've, you've lived multiple people's uh, existences all in all in one go. And then, you know, I think people who are listening are probably thinking, God, is it, has this guy been through enough? And then in, in 2019, you, you suffered a stroke. And do you, do you have much memory of what happened? I know that the, the strokes can obviously vary in their severity, but do you remember what occurred? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what, you know, whether I've run over a black cat or whatever, you know, my former life or whatever, but, yeah. I'd, um, yeah, so 2019, November 2019, November the 5th, 2019, I um, I woke up, uh, I think it was Tuesday morning, uh, felt a bit groggy, sort of half waking up about six in the morning, uh, knew I had to get up before Lynn because I had, to, I had a phone call to make for work early, early doors, sort of went to sort of roll over to turn the alarm off and fell out of bed and I was paralysed down my right hand side. Um, and... It, yeah, it was. I, I mean, it was like it, there was no pain, so it was quite a sort of perverse experience. But uh, Lynn, Lynn was up like a shot uh, and knew it was a stroke straight away. Uh, I kind of knew it was a stroke straight away, but I couldn't communicate. Um, so she did what you're meant to do and dialed 999, and then paramedics in into Peterborough Hospital. They knew it was a stroke straight away. Uh, they got on the phone to Adam Brooks in Cambridge, which is a specialist stroke centre about 40 minutes away and um, realised that I could be in line for quite a novel and relatively new procedure to basically remove the clot that they found. Uh, so they were trying to tee that up. Uh, and then, yeah, so it was, it was such a whirlwind, you know, by one o'clock I'd been taken to uh, Adam Brooks in Cambridge by, um, by ambulance uh, and was waiting this quite innovative procedure to remove the clot, which I was blooming fortunate to have because it's uh you know there's only one place in the country that does it 24 7 uh, and there's only 24 i think places around the country that do it and offer it and you have to be lucky because they need to build a bring a team together from a whole variety of disciplines to perform the procedure um and all the ducks lined up in a row for me you know the radiographer was was available the room was available uh, it, was, it was during the working week and he didn't have any other bookings. Uh, and uh, yeah, I had the clock taken out and then I was basically home the next day, unbelievably, but it saved my life. You know, without that, I'd had a, had a clock continuing to cause brain damage, basically. So I've been left with some brain damage and, and trying to work out, work things out and stuff like that. But uh, very, very, very fortunate to uh, to get that procedure. It's it's crazy, isn't it? When you, you look at those kind of sliding doors moments, the it, it just so happened to be, you know, it, it almost in a way you were really unfortunate and then almost really fortunate at exactly the same time, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, and it was so different to my previous hospital experience. You know, this was a wham-bam, thank you, ma'am, in and out type of job, whereas, you know, my previous hospital experiences have been slow degradation, you know, physically challenging, uh, you know, and, and this was, well, actually, I think my physical health since 2016 has been fantastic, the best it's ever been, you know, put lots of effort into that. And actually that helped me, you know, be resilient in terms of the stroke. And I think obviously my hospital experiences and Lynn's meant that we, we didn't panic through that stroke, if you see what I mean. So we kind of knew what we were going into, albeit the language was different and, and stuff like this. But it was, yeah, very, very different um, hospital experience. Um, uh, and, and yeah, but but one way, you know, you're sort of left now with, okay, what on earth? How? Because I've been so, so through, through 2016, I'd used all my learning from that sort of mental health journey, emotional intelligence journey over the last sort of, 10 or 15 years preceding that to help me manage that that surgery and that experience and come out of it stronger whereas with the stroke I was like hold on a minute have I got the tools my brain has been damaged have I got access to all that experience to help me 
recover successfully from this stroke and I just didn't know didn't know uh and that was yeah that was that was kind of my immediate sort of reaction was oh thank god I'm alive will I get back to work it you know what on earth will this lead to so um uh, but th thankfully, uh, physically, I was fine, which is why they allowed me to go the day after. You know, I can walk and I can walk and stuff like that. There wasn't any sort of physical impairment, which many people suffer. Uh, so I was I was really lucky in that regard. In terms of the the brain damage that you mentioned, Paul, what does that kind of like? What sort of impact does it have on you, sort of day to day? And you know, how do you kind of sort of deal with that? Yeah, well, so so initially lots of, well, I was struggling with words and you can, might pick this up from the podcast. I occasionally stumble on words and lose my train of thought and that type of thing. But um, uh, so, yeah, that, and that's called aphasia. So I had a mild aphasia to start with uh, and neuro fatigue is, is an absolute, whoa, you know, that's, uh, you know, Crohn's gives you physical fatigue, uh, neuro fatigue's sort of different gravy on top of that. So So fatigue, and then anxiety, you know, I had a massive, uh, you know, I used to, I used to think I was an anxious person. Turns out I wasn't. I was a bit of a worrier. But it was only when I actually had anxiety, you know, about two weeks after I came out of having the stroke, when I was like, woke up one night. Well, I didn't wake up one night. I couldn't get to sleep one night thinking I was going to die and have another one that uh, I realised what anxiety was. Um, so, yeah, so so I've, I've kind of come through that because I'm, I'm coming up to sort of two years two years later but day to day it's yeah managing fatigue uh i yeah can suffer from distraction and getting words mixed up occasionally if i've got too much stuff coming at me at once you know i can it's sometimes it goes computer says no type of thing in my head uh, uh and sometimes i get frustrated it's kind of magnified some of my inherent weaknesses in my characteristics shall we say you know wasn't the most patient person beforehand now i'm you know, 10 times less patient than I was before my stroke type of thing. So sort of magnified some of those, those things, but, but by and large, you know, I'm lucky I can drive. I can, you know, do pretty much everything. Most people can. I just, there's just a few things and a few, you know, tweaks to shifts, if you like, in my personality that we just need to, you know, we just need to work around really. And has the, has, I guess, so the stroke and the, 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 the crones and and everything you went through with with eve has have all those things kind of changed your kind of approach your attitude to to life and you know without without wanting to go into cliche almost the way that you sort of wake up and approach everything uh, it's difficult really because at the end of the day that that's a that's a 20 year that's half my life isn't it so mm. you know we all mature in 20 years don't we so i you know i i i have absolutely no doubt those experiences have adjusted who I've ended up being, the relationships I've got, the family, all of that type of stuff. It gives you perspective, doesn't it? You know that I think that's that's the main thing. It gives me, it gives me perspective on what's important, what really is an issue, what isn't. Um, you know, I'm not always perfect in that regard. You know, I, I don't. You know, a bit like after a, after a defeat or whatever at the football. You know, you don't get high, too high after the wins. You don't get too low after the losses. All of that type of stuff. Um, but it has it has it has certainly made me reflect on on what's important and yeah within all of that I think I've probably had certainly three what I would describe as near death experiences within all those those you know with all those, within all those sort of surgeries and hospital and stuff like that there's three times where you go hold on a minute I could I might not be here uh, how do I you know and you yeah avoid the cliche of oh live each day as you know live each day as if it's your last and all that sort of stuff because life is life isn't it you know there are days where I'm knackered I just quite like to get get to the end of the day uh, but it yeah it's about how you how you how you make the boast practically you know uh, it, yeah it, it, it yeah it, it's adjusted me but I, but I, yeah I, uh, I think you know part of it now is using I guess that experience and you know this podcast other things to to sort of rationalize it like I say just so that if there's you know if there's one percent of this that someone hears and you know it helps them join the dot on something or you know pick up the phone or whatever then you know you, you you've done some good haven't you I, I guess you probably feel the same down with with the podcast you know if there's one person out of this who chooses a positive path rather than a, a destructive one you, you know, you can feel truly valued for for what you what you've done. Oh, absolutely! I think that's that's. I think, as you say, it's it's 
you, you, you don't have to, you can sometimes feel as though you have to kind of, you know, every time you do something, it has to be something significant or huge or anything. But just, as you say, having that one small impact on someone can can be a really big thing. I think if you think about it kind of rationally and you think, God, I managed to change somebody's day or I changed how somebody thought about something, then that's a really positive thing. And to try and aim for that, that is great. The th- I, was, I was thinking, Paul, when I was asking about, you know, how you approach every single day and, and, and you know, obviously not wanting to do cliches and stuff, but when you hear people talking about saying, oh, you know, I live, live every day as if it's your last and all that type of stuff. I always think with people like that, do they get road rage still? Like, because you think, have you have you got time for road? Like, like I got a bit of road rage this morning. I was thinking, I wonder if I wonder if people like that think like when they're about to get annoyed, they think, oh no, this could be me last. I don't want to spend it with road rage. <laughs> thing with those little funny things that happen, do you still get annoyed? At, like, do you still get annoyed and you stub your toe and stuff like that? Um, in 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 the in the email that you you sent over to us, but you said something I thought was really interesting about the different versions of yourself. And and now having spoken to you for the last hour or so, I can. I can see exactly what you're talking about. I can almost feel as though I've gone on that journey with you. And you, you talked about that kind of hindsight and and proactiveness. And I can't sort of thinking about hindsight and the lessons that you've learned. So when it comes to your mental health and you sort of reference about your sort of anxiety and stuff that you were talking about there, what do you think is the biggest thing you've learned, the most valuable lesson, the, the thing that you would have really loved to have known all the way back in, in 2001? You know, the type of thing where you've gone, you know, I'd love to have been able to know that, to have not had to go through feeling that way, if you see what I mean. I, um, well, I think, I mean, you're, um, you're, uh, what's, I can't even think of the words. You, you're, well, it's, it's not a catchphrase, is it? But, you know, the way there's talking lads is, is, is the classic, you know, so the, the, there's, there's the, the, the importance of talking and breaking down barriers uh, the the having balance in your life and having you know the, the support network and I think I think if you know I think if you know back in my twenties I I gone right okay Paul you need to really improve how you can open up to people you need to make sure you've got a variety of support networks in place so you know not just your mates from school or your mates from uni or your wife or whatever you know you need you need a whole host of of, of support network for different things you know so that might well be you know and actually twitter for all it all its ills there's a right community going on around there isn't there that i'm sure we've got yeah. mutual acquaintances within that you know within all the the nonsense and, and 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 stuff that you have on twitter there's some real gems of empathy mutual support trust and stuff like that, which I think is immeasurably more valuable than, you know, the, 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 the nonsense you get on that, on that particular platform. So I think, you know, having all these things in play um, is really important. So actually, you know, if I were go, to go back to day one, it's like, well, actually, you know, the foundations for life are you need a few of these things. Paul, you know, when you were 25 years old, Put, put the effort into getting those into place then 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 do it but you know at the end of the day uh you know that's that's more about now how can you how can you help provide advice and steer and support to, to people who are trying to you know join the dots on a few things as well so yeah i think that, that that sort of foundation stuff is probably my key my key learning uh from it all but equally you know like like i think i said earlier you know you can look back and you can talk eloquently because in hindsight you've you've looked back on yourself and said oh i did x y and z but that's all great and you know and at the time it's in the moment isn't it how do you make how how do you make how do you balance your mental health in the moment when you're under pressure when your resolve is being tested uh when you're in situations that are basically threatening your life or threatening your future I don't think anything can prepare you for that. You know, that it's a bit like taking a, a penalty at a World Cup final, isn't it? You, you can sort of talk about it and you can theorise and you can, you can practice, but unless you're in the moment, you know, who knows how you're going to react? Yeah. I, I feel like it's almost like, look, look back on it. You know, it, it, in some ways, the, the looking back in hindsight is the best thing to do that you can walk back and learn from it. And, and think about how you might deal with it again in the future when you're feeling that same way and not, you know, going back to self-worth and, and self-esteem, 
not beating yourself up if you didn't do something you felt was the right thing in the first place. You see what I mean? Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, well, I'll, I'll, I'll mention that balance. I think there's a real, I've got a decent balance in my life now that with Lynn and the girls, such that you recognise the value of what you, the experiences you have as a family, but as, but equally the time that Lynn and I have together is valuable. The time that she has up by herself with her friends and I have is really valuable. You just got to respect that actually, you, you know, you need different sort of, you know, you don't have to do everything as a family 24 seven, 365 days a year, just, you know, make sure you've got balance in there. And that's where, you know, coming back to, to football is really important to me. You know, the girls are of an age now where I can have very different experiences going to watch Tranmere. I can go with my dad, I can go with my mates. I can go with, we can go, with, uh, you know, with Lynn and the girls, we can do different, which actually, which actually is very, you know, it's quite a good sort of rounded experience. I really enjoy the fact that I can, I can mix it up a little bit. Uh, but fundamentally, I think I've really, really come to value that connection that Tramme has back to home and the Wirral and, and stuff like that. And, uh, and my, yeah, the sort of, you know, the, the mates I go to watch Tramme with have become a really important part of my support mechanism, support network. That's fantastic. Well, I, I, I imagine for a lot of Tramley fans who are listening right now, I mean, depending on when um, we put this episode out, maybe the formula turned around. They probably wouldn't have expected uh, Tramley to have been a good source of uh, keeping your mental health stable. But but there we are, Paul. <laughs> well, and, but do, do you know? Do you know the funny thing is that I think I think this is this is this is it. So I, I used to chart my my health alongside Tramley's form. So. You know, my first surgery was as we dropped out of the championship, as was, had my surgery. And I remember the first game back after my first surgery was our, was the first game, Berry was it, I think? When in oh, the, yeah. One. And then basically we were, we, we were up and down for years and that's how my health went. And, and I think the, the resurgence of the club under, under Mark and Nicola, uh, and so... And the experience of Tramir going beyond, oh, it's just a 90-minute game, to actually it's, it's a day out, it's connections, it's about what the club's doing in the community, all of that, actually makes me a lot more, a lot less, I guess, reactionary, if you like, to the, to the wins and losses, because actually the club is thriving, albeit, you know, 90 minutes on a pitch, we're not going to thrive every game, but the club is moving forward, and that's that becomes really, really important to me. Um, so... Yeah, having sort of bounced back 2006 and then to experience our resurgence up two divisions and those promotions was was amazing. You know, that was kind of felt like a little bit of a, a vindication, if you like, for all the hard years, both personally and, and that the club had been through. But uh, yeah, it sort of makes these little, you know, these little mishaps in, in seasons and losses of form slightly less relevant when you when you're considering that sort of life context yeah you can run you can hide you can run you can hide you can